Welcome. It's Jeff Mayhew. It's John Beatty. It's Politics and Parenting, where we talk about politics, but we talk about it differently. John, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing pretty well, although it looks like we got Zoom Bomb. Did you see this guy who's on our call? Oh, that's right. We have a guest today. It's our first guest ever on the podcast. Uh, everybody, welcome Scott Howard. He's a junior from the University of Florida. He is an editor and writer for The Lone Conservative. And um, I've been following him on Twitter for, I don't know, about a year or so. Him and his group of Twitter followers and friends are some of the brightest, smartest young conservatives out there. Um, so go follow him. And today we're going to talk about an article that he wrote uh, about DeSantis and the education situation in florida how are you doing today doing pretty well jeff thanks for having me on i'm excited to talk to you guys absolutely so being a university of florida student having the center of the political world focused on your governor um and then i think the center of everybody's political world elsewhere is is school right now is education what is going on down there <laughs> So Florida is is right smack dab in the middle of a lot of interesting changes. Um, the article I wrote talked about the the governor has made some interesting moves on higher education in the last few months. Um, a few weeks ago, actually probably about a month ago now, um, he appointed a whole new slate of uh, board board of directors for New College, which is a private liberal arts college down in. Um, not private, it's a liberal arts college down in Sarasota. Um, so he revamped their board of directors, um, fired the president, appointed all new folks. Um, he's pushing for a whole overhaul of higher education here in Florida. He appointed Ben Sass to be president here at UF. Um, that's where that's why Ben Sass left the Senate. Um, he's pushed through he's pushing through some reforms. Um, one big one that is currently being debated in the legislature is requiring Western Civ at all higher education. Um, all colleges across the state, which I think would be really interesting. So yeah, so Florida has been the center of a lot of interesting um, proposals and reforms the last few months. So when I was reading your article, something struck out at me. You talked about, um, and I might be pronouncing his name wrong, but uh, Rufo, is that correct? Is that your pronoun? Yes, Christopher Rufo. So, you know, you call him dark, do, uh, dogmatic. Uh, he tends, he's kind of leaned into the the hot topic culture issues with CRT and the gender stuff. Um, and you say that like the appointees that DeSantis made five out of six are good. And he's the one that's not. Why do you think that is like, why did this guy get on with the other five guys <clears throat> or women? I so don't know. Christopher, <laughs> Christopher Rufo has made a name for himself. He's a, he's actually a smart guy. He works over at the Manhattan Institute. He does research for them. And he, he's made a name for himself in the last few years for, as you said, um, really pushing into this the hot-button culture issues, the CRT or, or gender studies or queer theory, whatever, what have you. And I think he made the board because Governor DeSantis knows that that's his sort of attraction and he wanted to make a splash with this reform. So he appointed him for the board alongside these other five scholars some of which come hail from Hillsdale College up in Ohio. Um, others are other senior fellows at various um, think tanks and institutes across the country. Um, but of the six he appointed, Rufo is definitely the the most polarizing because he's his his name and his sort of brand is very um, very hard and very not radical, but he pushes hard into those culture war issues. Yeah, so like he fights. I think that's what people would say. Like they like that people fight and that they push back. And I think he's very much in that vein of not being afraid to throw bombs. Certainly. I so like I I guess I look at it from a different way. I think of it from like a very like like what do I think happened here, right? Uh, DeSantis is on the rise. He wants to you know gain notoriety notoriety uh, nationally because he's he's clearly thinking about running for president. I mean, he'd be kidding himself to say otherwise. Um, and typically those polarizing figures are the ones that can like bring coalitions to your side. Right. So like, to me, this looks like a, like a quid pro quo situation, right? He's, he's probably helped DeSantis in some way or form over the last year or so. And this is like, he put five guys on there that are, that DeSantis probably thinks are very qualified for the job and are very good for the state. 
And then he put this guy on there because he sells, he makes them, you know, he, he sells entertainment, you know, he, he's divisive and it brings people around and that helps DeSantis in his achievements. Um, I don't know if that's the case that shows really weak leadership, right? It, you know, we, a leader is supposed to make the right decisions, not decisions that are right for him. Um, and, uh, you know, that would be disappointing because, you know, out of all the contenders for the Republican race right now, I mean, he might be the best, as terrible as that sounds. <laughs> no, I, I agree with all of that, Jeff. It's definitely, um, Rufo's appointment was definitely meant to be, it meant to put a, a spotlight on what he's doing in Florida. It's supposed to be a signal to the nation and specifically to Republican voters across the nation say, look at how, look at the changes I'm making and look at how much I fight. You know, I pointed this guy to this college. We're going to overhaul this college. We're going to fix, you know, whatever problems with, you know, liberal institutional capture we have in these colleges. And I'm going to do so by appointing these real fighters. So it's definitely, it was definitely a splash meant to make, to show, show off what he's doing. Yeah. That's disappointing. <laughs> John, what do you well, think? I think it's so, I mean, so much of politics is about like, uh, it's, it's not, I think, um, it's not, it's, uh, you're not governing, you're, you're looking for a platform or something. So it's kind of, it's in the same vein, like, uh, Trump was a performer that kind of lucked into politics. Like I think DeSantis is following that playbook where you're just trying to generate noise and attention and be top of mind for when someone goes into the ballot box and votes for it. There isn't a whole lot of depth behind it. A lot of ideas or something other than, you know, I fight, I'm going to keep fighting. I'm going to keep rabble rousing. Um, because I, I would say people, tend to get upset that that someone goes into an office and says I'm going to I'm going to work on this issue this issue this issue and then when they can't get enough of a coalition or something they kind of nothing gets done and so people say well you're not fighting for me and I would bet <clears throat> that's kind of what DeSantis is going for to show like hey I'm going to still throw some punches when I'm president and um so I it, you know it's it's in that vein of of governing by uh entertaining rather than uh, perhaps I'll oh, get things done. But at the same thing, this is the great thing about DeSantis is he can throw those punches and say like, I'm going to put Chris Rufo, but Rufo is only one of six. He's got five other really solid people um, that can actually like move the direction of this and, and provide the real wisdom and guidance. So that is the unique thing about DeSantis is he's not just the entertainer or not just the person who um, pushes buttons, but he also has a lot of substance behind it. So I will be curious to see how the whole election breaks down and, and if and when he wins, um, what he would actually bring to the governing. Because I think, like, if you look at Florida, I mean, um, Scott, you would know more about this, but from what I've heard, like, the legislature, they've got term limits. Jeff, that's something you are, are in love with and uh, strong proponents. But, like, there's no state debt in Florida, if I'm correct. Um, there's no state income tax. They've got a balanced budget every time that something comes around. So like, it's a really well-governed state. And if you could bring that with them, I think we would all benefit regardless of, of where Chris Rufo fits in. Yeah. I mean, so you mentioned it in there is the, he does have depth. He doesn't have to be the entertainer. And the fact that he appointed five people that are highly qualified and one that isn't means that he knows that that person isn't qualified. And that's, where it's really disappointing because that's telling us the people that he's trying to manipulate us right he's like hey because what he'll do is anytime he's questioned by it in the future let's say this guy rufo does something stupid which when you get people that are like highly partisan they typically do stuff that are stupid and so in the future he'll go yeah i made a mistake here but look at these good things i did always look to the good things and just try to ignore this one little tiny thing but that one thing was like that was intentional and you did that and you should have known better you know no, you're right. And he definitely, it, it is definitely concerning because as I outlined on the piece, there are a lot of serious proposals that DeSantis is pushing and that the legislator is considering here that are really worth, that's on their merits alone, they should be celebrated. But he does, with the Rufo appointment and other things he's done, he's sort of going for that splashy, you know, fighter vibe because he thinks that's what he needs to be doing. And it is disappointing because a lot of what he does in Florida, as, as John pointed out, there are a lot of great things going on in Florida. Florida is a really well-run state. It has been very well-run under his under his governorship so far. 
under the surface, he does a lot of great stuff for the state that doesn't get talked about because he doesn't celebrate it. He he pushes the things he makes public and really tries to sell are these divisive issues, these you know fighter issues. And it's disappointing because he's done a lot of other things and proposed a lot of other things that by themselves could be celebrated. And it'd be nice to see him push those without the the fighter aspect to it. Well, and that's the thing that I, I see with a lot of politicians is like they know how to do a lot of good and they are can are can be very successful. But since in the last like four to five years, they've just it's almost like they've given up. They're like, I have to do what the public wants me to do. You know, like you, well, like, they have to do what, tw what Twitter wants them to do. Like it's really it's it's performing for the Twitter mob, which tends to drive all the conversation, which drives a lot of other things. But so much of what what any politician does is like I've got my key tweets that are going to get uh, wrapped around and put on the Chiron on cable news, and then that's going to drive what shows up in the newspaper, and that's what it's going to drive that people talk about. Like I think. You talk about like four or five years, like that's kind of what's changed so much um, that I think drives that idea of not necessarily focusing on what I'm the bread and butter issues that a politician does or that doesn't do, but really trying to push into the um, what gets people talking on Twitter and gets the virality. Yeah. And what gets people talking is if you fight. Right. And that's what you mentioned. Like he's mm -hmm. got to be the fighter. Trump was the fighter. And it's like we talked about it at our class this Sunday. Where's the power? The power is in the patience. The power is in the persistency, right? Just because you fight for this issue and you get your one guy on the board, what, what have you done? You've met power with power. So now the other side is more stubborn against you. Scott, you mentioned he's doing a lot of great things, but he does these culture war battles, which makes the other side want to fight against him more. This is counterintuitive to his objective. This is not how you're supposed to govern. No, I agree. And I, I think... That will be highlighted more if and when he does announce for the run to run to president. Because right now he's just simply governor, and he won he won big last election. So the people here in Florida understand. You know, they look at him as they oh he's been a good governor. We're going to reelect him. But once he hits the national stage, that will come to light more because the things he really has really pushed so far have been those divisive culture war issues, and it will drive the left to or his his opponents to want to fight back more rather than him pushing the pieces of solid governance that he's done and saying, look at me, I'm, I'm an effective governor. I'm a good leader. This is what a good leader does without the fanfare, without the fighting, the pomp and circumstance to celebrate for the Twitter crowd. And so when it comes time for him to announce, these things will definitely be highlighted. You know what it makes me think of? And I'd like, I hate to project you know, onto people, but like, I just can't think that maybe he's like just really deeply insecure. You know, like that's what I always thought about Trump is like the reason that he goes along with the mob is because he, he just wants people to like him. You know, he's probably like a pretty nerdy guy. Did he go to Harvard? Where did he go to school? Harvard. Harvard. And then he went to the military, I believe. Well, I mean, like, I don't know, like, to me, like, I would love to be able to be like, hey, I went to Harvard, but I'm just like a nobody. I'm I'm poor. So like, <laughs> I, I didn't go to I didn't go to school. But, you know, like, I know that there is something even in myself where I like I feel because I read a lot, and I feel a little disconnected from regular society and entertainment, you know, because I don't watch TV anymore. I don't watch sports anymore. So like, I get where those insecurities come from, you know, like I understand why he may feel that way, but at the same time, it's like, still got to do the right thing. You know, like th what's the point of reading all this and trying to be a better person and grow if you're just going to give in to the mob? There isn't a point. I think actually, I'm sorry. I, I think he maybe went to Harvard law school. I think he went to like Yale on a okay. baseball scholarship, some, some Ivy league on a baseball scholarship. So um, I'm going to look it up now. So we just, so we get it right. So uh, one of the things I liked about your article, Scott, is you also talked about the tenureship um, and sort of this brewing fight in terms of who decides who the professors are. And I think it was really a, gr a great point you brought up, like, just because you can go in there and you can, again, like throw some th throw some punches and be like, we got this guy off the faculty and we got this guy off the faculty um, or girl, um, you know, like that's there's a going back to what Jeff was saying, like power versus power, like they'll come back at you and they'll knock every other professor that you like off the faculty and and then where are you, where are you at you're you're stuck with you're back to square one or maybe even in a, in a worse position because now for for every one professor that you don't like that you got off maybe they got uh, one or two of your professors off and if you're already 
in a disadvantaged numerical situation, you're now uh, at an even worse percentage. No, yeah, I agree with all of that. I'm glad you glad you brought that up because that was definitely definitely one of the pieces of reform that I'm most concerned about here. Um, because giving giving university presidents the power to just review and end tenure and fire professors at whim could be really bad for the kinds of professors that DeSantis wants to wants to protect. I mean, it's no common it's it's not a secret that in universities, conservative professors are often the minority in numerous universities, including here in Florida. And while he may think that ending tenure and letting college presidents fire professors at will will help solve that, what you're going to end up with is a lot of liberal college presidents that say, okay, well, now I can just fire all these conservative professors I don't like. Like tenure serves a good purpose. And I think what he's proposing there could have some pretty disastrous outcomes if it's not very careful. Look at ask Harry Reid what he thinks about the Senate. In the yeah, see, it's. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I mean it, it's uh, it happens over and over again. By the way, right. Yale, a, and a, uh, Yale and Harvard. Yale and Harvard. Okay, yeah. Went Yale and Harvard. So I mean, he's like really a lot smarter than me. Like he would never take my phone call. He would look down upon me very much. He's like, you got a flannel shirt on, kid. No way. <laughs> I'm sure if you wrote a big enough check, you wouldn't pick up your phone call, Jay. <laughs> well, of course, if I had money. <laughs> All right. So, um, Scott, I sent you a text on, what, Saturday, right? Was it Saturday? Friday. And I asked you, I said, uh, where is it here? You talking about the uh, the AI the text? AI stuff, yeah. So, um, here it is. You're um, imagine a ChatGPT AI bot that speaks like Alexa. How many months or years until it happens? Oh, less than twelve months for sure. I think that's coming within the year. This the last few weeks have been really eye-opening about how fast this AI technology is evolving. Well, I saw something, Microsoft put out something um, a few days ago, actually, and they, they have a project in plan to integrate AI into their Microsoft 365, like their office programs, the entire, every Microsoft Word, Microsoft PowerPoint, Excel, all of it's going to have AI integration. Um, so I think a, a chat GPT AI that talks to you like Alexa does is right around the corner. Um, I mean, to me, like, it distorts reality, you know, like, I mean, I I just, I thought about this because I was laying in bed and I was trying to figure out what I was going to wear the next day. And I was like, Hey, Alexa, what's the weather going to be like? And it answered me back, but in a very computerized way. And I thought about it answering me back, like chat GPT, like, Hey, what's your plans for tomorrow, Jeff? I need to know this before I can give, you know, like just more personable And I think about like all the people that are like stuck at home and all the people that are disconnected from society. And I go, they're going to dilute themselves into thinking that these relationships are real with these programs. And that's going to create a like mass like problem, social problem. But then on top of that, it just makes it easier to trick people. Um, There's an article that I, I read today and there's a good quote in here. Where'd it go? It says, you have to assume that deception will become far cheaper and more prevalent in this new era. And like, that's crazy. You know, if you can get a chat AI bot to create, you know, a fake ID that's uncontrollable. Now you're like laws and your rules of order for society are out the window because now technology can circumvent them at any point in time. Like, how do we guardrail this as a society like and how do we do it fast before it gets out of control that is a great question um i think our our legislator is going to have to really start taking a look at some privacy laws when it comes to stuff like this um because we already have I mean, there's already the technology to create fake videos of people is already out there you know deep you can make a deep fake video of you saying something 
really, really terrible and post it on Twitter or me say something really terrible. And it's almost to the point now where it's pretty indistinguishable to the the naked eye. It's hard to tell that that video is fake or real. So I think our legislators really need to start stepping up privacy laws and we'll probably have to regulate how these things work. Um, how, I couldn't tell you. What I would really like to see though are that these companies that and the engineers that keep designing these things maybe take a step back and think about what they're doing and and what the potential consequences are because it looks like we're just sort of it's like a train without a conductor we're just running headlong into whatever comes next we don't have any guidance we don't nobody at the front of the train saying hey maybe we should slow down we should yeah. we should take a second here um so it would be great if they would if the people designing these programs would say hold on a minute let's but maybe slow it down a little bit, be more responsible. I'm typically like a limited government guy, but I mean, government does serve a purpose. And that is when something like this happens, right? Like, like you said, the people in charge of these programs, they're just full steam ahead. They're not thinking about the future. They're thinking like, I've got to win. I, I their, their focus is their fiduciary value as according to the Supreme Court in Dodge Brothers versus Ford. They got to pay out their stockholders. They got to make money, right? They don't care what happens to society or the future, but the government's supposed to. Like they should at least come in and be like, hey, let's just put a pause. Let's write some basic rules. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, you watch the news and there was like a news show. And if there was somebody on there like their face would get blurred out, you know, like when they did crowds, they couldn't just show anybody. But now you can just make a deep fake of anybody and make them say something else and put it on the internet. And there's no consequences and there's no rules against that. Like you're distorting somebody's being. You're taking their identity and using it or in your own way for profit or entertainment or whatever purposes. And that's just okay now. Like, I, I don't understand. Well, um, OpenAI is an interesting company because the the genesis behind it is they realized, I think, at the beginning how powerful AIs could be. And so their goal was to build the most powerful AI and then open source it so that everyone had access to it. So that it almost like a, a nuclear arms race, but an AI arms race of if everyone's got a nuclear bomb, then you're all kind of, there is a, um, <clears throat> a, a detente between everyone where you're not going to just, you know, you understand how powerful it could be. So I think the interesting thing with like chat GPT version four, or the version four of this jet chat GPT um, system that just came out is it's actually not open source anymore. And they're starting to claw back and not release it because they're going back to the fiduciary duties. They realize they got to make money because the stuff is really expensive to run. And, and um, so I think that like the initial goal was very idealistic of realizing how powerful these AIs could be how much that um, we were going to need to like understand what they could do in order to maybe come up with, with the guard guards and, and such. Um, but now we're kind of seeing where that's getting pulled back. And I think people are sort of seeing um, the money that could be made because if you now are the only person with a, with a nuclear um, bomb, that gives you a lot of power. And I think we're now going to see this balance of power shift where it used to be like, well, yeah, let's, let's figure this out so that we can make mankind better. And now it's kind of like, Maybe we can make our pocketbooks uh, a little bit bigger, um, and then. But I, I think going back to like what what rules and guardrails you can put in place, I would bet there aren't any rules that you can put in place. Um, you know, in the same way you put a fence around your house, like someone can sometimes get around that if they really want to. So I have a, I have a sense that it's not going to be a legislative thing that's going to change how we interact with AIs. It's going to be more of a learned experience, uh, where in the same way, like. If you burn your hand on the stove, you kind of learn how you you shouldn't get that close to the stove or you should be more careful around that. I think we're going to get burned really, really bad by AIs. And um, obviously, I can't predict what it is. It's most likely going to be some kind of deep fake, could be some deep news story. You know, it doesn't have to be a video. It could just be a text and it could be some kind of thing where um, going back to like, uh, you know, you ask Alexa, like, Alexa, what's happening? And some kind of glitch in this in this correlation engine comes up and it says, we're at war. And if you get that a couple hundred times, that would drive people crazy. And they're going to start, they're going to propagate the same idea that they heard that the, that an uh, innocuous AI told them. And now we're in this real bad situation, kind of like, uh, like the war of the worlds. Like, um, you guys heard that story? Mm -mm. Yeah, I have. Oh, okay. So um, the the premise of it, and for maybe I'm, I'm getting this wrong, but it's a, um, 
I think it's a, oh, what is it? There's a radio show, H.G. Wells. Okay, He yes. reads off the story and everyone's listening to it and they think it's real because this is, the radio is their source of truth. Right. This is being portrayed in a truthful way and they think we're being attacked by aliens and people go crazy about it. And I think we're going to have something just like that. Yeah. And, I, uh, you know, I don't know if there's any rules that come out of that situation, but like, I think that's where we're heading. It's not, legislation may follow past that, but we're definitely in the, in the, a crash course on a crash course so i don't know like guardrails that you put in i my thought process was and we talked about this a little bit is we need to make the technology less valuable right and how do we do that a lot of the technology like you mentioned last week uh panera wants to invest in all this technology because it'll you know, or they want to raise the minimum wage because it pushes them to be, it it justifies them spending the money on the technology, the investments in the AI and all these different things. So they can get rid of the workers because they'll make money in the future. So how do we fix that? Lower the minimum wage, bring more people back into the workforce, allow small businesses to compete. You make the technology less valuable. Therefore, less people are fighting a war to get the technology because now it doesn't matter as much. i always rather take have a person take my order even if that person is flawed they fix mistakes faster than the ai they recognize mistakes faster than the ai i mean that will change i'm sure at some point in time but it's never going to be able to read my emotions it's never going to recognize that i'm just having a bad day you know like help me Mm -hmm. out (laughs) well it might get good it might like fake it but you're right It'll, it'll just there won't be that connection it'll be a fake connection and that's enough to fool us and lead us in the wrong way. Yeah. So, Scott, I want to ask you about that. Speaking of, like, because did you have to do Zoom at school at all, like, during the whole COVID? Yes. So, like, yes. you went through, like, a period. When did you start Zoom? What grade were you in? I was a senior in high school when senior. I started. And so I had the second semester, my second semester senior year, and then all of freshman year of college we were on Zoom. So, like, how did that change your like being like that must have been such a big culture shock at like a time period that was really supposed to be like, like you were graduating high school it was your senior year, your, your first year in college. Like that's when you build, like you separate from a lot of relationships and then build a lot of new relationships. And then just overnight it was gone. Right. Yeah, no, it was, it was definitely a culture shock because when we started on zoom senior year, um, I was, I was back home in South Dakota and I lived on the farm anyway. So I was already, I already lived outside of, you know, city life and outside of society, but being on zoom, just doing, I saw my friends on a screen and that was, that was how I knew them for three months. Thankfully we had graduation in person. And then when I went to college, it was the same way I moved, moved to Florida. And instead of, you know, going out on campus and meeting people like that and, you know, doing what you would expect a freshman in college to do. I spent most of my time in my dorm room, staring at a screen, talking to people that they were my friends because you know I had them in class, but I didn't really know them because I didn't see them in person at all. It was just, all right, there's 30 of us on this screen. Let's listen to the professor talk, and then we'll talk to each other over our microphones. And it was just a very different, very different experience, very disconnected from sort of reality in terms of actually getting to meet and see people and get to know them face to face. Yeah. I mean, I saw that with my kids, you know, watching them go through the zoom process. Um, And it's really what I fear going forward with our society with the push towards technology. And again, it's like, I tell people like, I don't hate technology. I love technology. If you can make my life easier, great, but don't take away the thing that makes me human. You know, don't take away my interactions. Don't take away my interface. Um, you know, it's great that you live in Florida. I live in Virginia and we're able to do this over Zoom. Like we're, we're complaining about the thing we're using, right? But at the same time, it's like, it's a tool. It's not a replacement, you know? And like, use it as a tool and don't like let it replace your human interactions with people. And I think we'd be safe, you know, if if humans were a little bit more virtuous, as as James Madison would say, we wouldn't need government at all. So, <laughs> what is he? no, I I I agree with all of that, and I think that's what that's what concerns me most about AI is that like tools like Zoom or other technological revolutions, they've been tools. You, know, you use them to aid things like AI or the Chat GPT. 
I see it on college because I'm on college campuses and kids are always looking for ways to skirt their assignments. ChatGPT has opened up a whole new window for kids to like cheat. You can just write your essay. And right. right now the technology is not good enough that it's, it can be detected, but you know, these things are evolving really, really fast. And you can get to a point where kids just can write a whole, you know, a plus essay just because they type in a prompt. You know, that's not just a tool anymore or this, these AI that talk to you and you can talk to, it's not just a tool. That's a whole replacement that, that things like that or things like AI art, like that art that's generated by a computer that's almost impossible to discern from art painted by a human. Like these aren't just tools anymore. These things are replacing real human value and those things that make us human, you know, the, the parts of our soul that separate us from these machines. It's getting hard to tell which is which now. And that's really concerning to me. Yeah, I mean... I think they did have something that they said that the AI generated art cannot be copywritten. So that means that you are going to profit less on it because now if you use AI generated art and like, like, let's say you're a business logo, like I, I do screen printing for a living. So like I create logos, that's good for my industry. That means people are still going to have to come to people like me to get their logos created because their AI generated art can't be copywritten. So somebody can just take it. Um, but at the same time, you don't know what's been AI generated or not. I saw a tweet this morning with like, a, it was, uh, who was that? Brad Pitt and somebody else for some movie. And I swear that Brad Pitt is not real. Like it says that it's a photo of Brad Pitt and I'm looking at it and I go, I don't think it's real. But just the fact that I have to think that now, like anything that's like AI generated should be labeled AI generated. You should have to tell people what is real and what is fake. Like, we had standards at some point in time, like bait and switch laws. Like you couldn't lie to people on what things were. You should at least like, just, just tell us, just tell us the truth, you know? So I'll no, push I back definitely, a little bit I definitely... and I'll say, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Um, you were talking about like what makes us human in terms of art and such. And you you could argue that <clears throat> cave paintings, uh, would you paint with your finger in the mud? Like that's art. Uh, hieroglyphics where you're you're etching in the stone and you're filling in with some kind of color that's art but like art changes as as society changes and we go from hieroglyphics and uh you know pretty pretty cool statues in the egyptians um to these amazing uh very lifelike renaissance uh you would say almost renaissance but like these beautiful greek statues and then we lose that as a society and then it takes a while to and, and the romans and stuff but we lose that and it takes a while to rediscover that um, back in the in the Renaissance. Like, um, there are techniques and there are things that I would say that the human aspect is knowing how to use the tools. And so, if, if AI is just another tool, then we all kind of learn how to, to how to use it. Um, and I'm, one of the examples from this Microsoft demo that I've heard about was this executive who's planning her daughter's graduation party, and the AI plans it all for her. It comes up with a checklist of what she needs comes up with a PowerPoint slide that's going to play in the background. Apparently it writes this graduation speech um, or this, this speech that the, the mom's going to give for her daughter. Um, and, you know, like in one sense, uh, the typewriter was, was a way to speed up our way to write papers and maybe AI is a, is a way to speed up and take our ideas and put them out there. Um, and so maybe we just have to learn how to use these new tools and that'll actually speed. It, it'll make us more efficient and and we'll be able to, have more leisure time and, and be more like um, the artistic pursuits that really make us human rather than the drudgery that uh, we've been tr trying to escape for millions and millions of years. I mean, like, I think that's, that just be, that could be an, an argument against this. Um, and I think there's downsides when you get rid of, of all friction. And I think you've mentioned that Jeff, like there is some virtue in um, having to struggle through something, but I think maybe that struggle now becomes instead of having to learn how to paint, it's how, what kind of commands do you give to the AI at prompt? In order to get it some artwork and so the the copyright is the um the commands and the like engine the that generates the image yeah 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 i mean i see where you're coming from there i mean i guess my my thought process is the human element is the ability to think right like mm -hmm. that you know my artistic being is me taking what's in my head and putting it on paper or a screen right if you're simply telling, hey, create this thing, it it may have never actually been in your head. Like maybe the words were in your head, but you didn't have this picture in your head. And now the computer's creating the picture for you. And like more concerning is it is the human element that's taken away. You know, if 
if ChatGPT is writing students' papers for them, they're not thinking, right? That's my biggest concern is as a parent, what I try to structure my children around is thinking in all aspects of everything we do. My focus is on teaching them how to think. And, you know, if we're creating all these tools that takes thinking out of them and the school is going to be okay with that and they're going to lean into this, then like we just have a whole bunch of people that are completely dependent. What happens if the technology fails? Like, where do you learn this stuff it, once the information's gone? I mean, you take you take a huge risk putting all of your information in a cloud and all of your information, you know, into an AI to do it for you. If something, God forbid, happens, you know, like you ever watch that show, it was like revolution or something like that. And just like the power went out one day and like, it, it was like on NBC years ago, it was only one season. It was a terrible show, but I loved it because it was sci-fi. The power it was too close out. to real world. So that's yeah, like the, just like one day the power went out. So like nobody had internet, cars, no power work, you like move society back like 400 years. Um, and like, what happens? What, what then, right? Like you have society that doesn't even like know how to read anymore. <laughs> like that would be bad. <laughs> no, I think the real smart people are going to be like, they're just, they'll cut technology out or they'll just use it sparingly. And like the school I work at worth considering this. And I think the answer is really going to be handwritten assignments in the classroom where you can you you make the kids actually do the prep work and then think think it through and then show that it's their thoughts like i think that's the way around that you work you work so it's the the answer to more technology is, is sort of a balance of, of less technology depending on the situation i like that actually i like that a lot i've been pushing for that in schools for a while is like get my kid off a screen and put the pen and paper in their hand <laughs> mm -hmm. what do you think scott um, that that seems to be the growing consensus here on my campus. Um, I've heard a few professors talk about it because this this thing really has like overnight revolutionized what's going on. Like last semester, I didn't know anything about this. I didn't know what was going on. Like we didn't talk about this because the the technology wasn't out. And over the last three weeks, we went from technology is not really anything to I've talked about it in all of my classes, and we every professor has sat down and said, "Look, you can't use this." Um, the professors are actually. They're going about different ways. I've had one professor say, you're not allowed to use this. I will move to pen and paper if I have to, if I catch somebody cheating. Um, I'm taking a philosophy class where my next assignment, actually, one of the prompts is you can have a discussion with the chat GPT about this philosopher and his philosophy, and you have to try to, like, draw philosophical answers from it. So some some people are definitely adjusting to using it as a tool and just sort of playing with it to see what you can do. Um, others have very been very standoffish against it. Um, but I think the consensus in, in a lot of corners is that we might have to move back to pen and paper. We might have to do some of that things, get away from the technology for a little bit because it's just so revolutionary in this moment. Um, I think with time we'll adjust, but right now it's just very, it's just upended everything. Yeah. I, um, so I play with it. I play with ChatGPT all the time. I think it's a great tool to to have fun with. Um, you can use in some circumstances, and I do exactly that. I love to ask it questions about philosophy and life and see what it comes up with because I think it's fun. And then the other thing I do is like I, I did this back in December. I wrote a story about It's a Wonderful Life on my Substack, and I asked ChatGPT to write the same story that I wrote, and then I posted both of them. And like the thing that I noticed that ChatGPT misses that that, you know, or at least isn't my focus is like, I'm always focused on the person. Like I'm always focused on the humanity aspect of it because I'm a human being, right? That's what I think about. ChatGPT is like cold, hardcore facts, you know? And like, when it tells you something about somebody, it's not telling you like how it happened. It's telling you this person was this way. And that's not, why were they that way? You know, like, <laughs> There's there's so much more to the story and ChatGPT doesn't seem to like tell us that part. And I think that that is, you know, if you're leaning on it and you're using it as a replacement, it's bad. If you're using it as a tool, it allows you to like grow and think about things in a different way. I, I agree. Um, I want to I want to take a, a moment. Um, I'm going to make a slightly a comparison to something a hundred years ago. And I, I promise it'll make sense. Um, I took a class last year on the history of capitalism. And we spent a lot of time talking about the railroad and the invention of the steam engine, and how railroads revolutionized man. 
not just the way we moved about, but the nature of man itself. Um, and I, we read a book. I wish I could remember the title. I'll have to find it and I'll send it to you because I think you think it was really interesting. That talked about like firsthand accounts of people who lived when railroads were first getting popularized in Europe, writing about how it changed the way they thought about themselves. Because if you if you've ridden in a horse and buggy, you're moving ten miles an hour, and you feel all the bumps in the road, and you sort of feel that human, that real aspect to travel in a train. You think about going from that to a train that's moving 40 miles an hour, the rails are smooth, and you just see everything flying by. And it was a lot of first-hand accounts of people who felt sick, they felt inhuman, they didn't feel like real people anymore because they lost touch with that like that connection with the real world. Um, and then we adjusted, your man adjusts over time. AI right now, we're in that the first five years of that railroad where we just we don't know. Like this is changing how man thinks about himself, how we're going to look at each, ourselves, and how we're going to think about human nature. Um, I think with time we will adjust to this, and I have I have faith that with more exposure, as it settles down, we'll get more used to this. But right now we're really in that revolutionary moment where it's going to completely change the way we look at each other and think about each other and think about ourselves in relation to the world. I mean. I I'm glad you brought that up. I think about that a lot. I compare that to like the railroads and steamboats. And when I, when I read about that, the thing that I always take away is like, there's casualties. There's always going to be casualties, right? When you're trying to do something big and great and change the world and you're learning, there's always bad things that happen. And it, but it was limited, right? Like it was the people on the steamboat that chose to take that ride you know, like they chose to take the risk. Everyone wasn't forced to take the risk. Like my thing is with AI is like the way that we're putting it out there, the casualties are going to be a bunch of people that didn't sign up for it. Um, they're people that aren't agreeing to take the risk. They're, it's being forced upon them. Um, and I just, you know, I'm not a big proponent of forcing things on people. I'm for progress. I'm for growing. I'm just not for making people grow before they're ready. I think that's when you have power meeting power. I think that's when you have big bangs happening. And I just think that's when society has problems. So, you know, figuring out some way to slow it down, like you mentioned before, would be best before people get hurt. Well, isn't that just adversity where you you have a new situation and you have to learn to deal with it? I think, you know, we can't be prepared always for what changes, but going back to the railroads, like I'm thinking of Western Loudoun County, like there was, this was like a, a huge area that produced hay and grain. But with the railroads, it becomes cheaper to produce grain out in the Midwest uh, and South Dakota and, and to produce hay out in South Dakota. And then you can shuffle it around the country. And so um, <clears throat> in one sense, it makes things better because it's cheaper, because you can do bigger farms, bigger production out in somewhere where the land's cheaper and the labor's cheaper. And it makes it that's low, that raises the standard of living so that the railroads are raising the standard of living by a change that's happening around us, but it hurts the local farmer because now the local farmer, his farm out in, um, out in Lovettsville, where he was just growing uh, wheat, now he's got to compete in a whole different market and that's going to hurt him. So I just think like, really it's getting, it's getting used to almost like uh, accepting change and how, accepting that things are going to happen. And how do you um, have the, the perseverance to, to work through that? Um, how does society not leave people behind perhaps or and that goes you know that goes back to the kind of commonwealth aspect where it, it isn't just pure like i'm going to pad my pocketbook and i don't care about anyone else like you, you kind of have to care about someone else because that's there's a bigger justice out there so i i think if anything that might be where we head is is as um the the poor artists get really like uh put out to pasture um you know maybe there's going to be other changes and stuff where society actually gets better that we don't foresee yeah but who is thinking about us? Like in all seriousness, like, I mean, they still wrote regulations and rules for the railroads and steamboat industries. Like there was still, you know, you weren't just able to do whatever you wanted to do. There were lots of court cases over this stuff. Um, yeah, but that's all, po that's all after the fact, like a court case happens, like someone dies and then you have a court case to litigate it. I think we're going to have deaths around AI, unfortunately. And then we're going to have litigation around it and people are going to be held liable or, People, there will be no liability, but then we'll we'll put a law in place that says like if you do this, you're liable. Uh, like I th I think that's, you know, I would bet that's where it's going to go. Yeah, I mean, because you're right. Yeah, 
I don't know why we can't learn from those mistakes. Again, I'm not trying to like regulate the heck out of the system. I'm just trying to say like, hey, let's more information, right? Like these, these, the, the companies writing the code and doing this, what they should be doing is educating people on what AI is like, that should be their mm -hmm. focus as companies is like, Hey, I'm going to build this big program and do this great thing for society. Let me tell people how to use this thing. Don't use it here. Use it here. You know, stuff like that. Give us some basic information. And we talk about that at our class. What's the representative's job to listen and to inform, you know, if our representatives aren't going to hold these companies accountable, let's have the companies hold themselves accountable. Give us information. Let us know what's going on so we can adjust with you. You know, I don't know. Just my thought. No, I agree. But I think like, I, that's, I, if you think, you think about agriculture, like you spend a lot of time. Um, you know, you've got seeds that you can plant in the ground, but you have to spend a lot of time figuring out what's the best environment to grow those seeds. And I think, and then, and then you kind of have the rules of thumb and like, you think of like the USDA zones where you like, well, your zone seven, it's going to grow like this. Like that wasn't just thought of, that wasn't pre-planned. You had to kind of live through that and draw the wisdom out of it. And I, I just think that that's where we're going to go. Okay. Um, sorry, Scott, I, I interrupted you. No, I, I agree with everything you just said. I think it's it's going to be a, a trial and error, and it might be rough. I think it'll be a, a, a rough next 10, 15 years while we try to sort of hash out what all this technology is, where it's going. Um, I also agree with Jeff. I, I really hope these companies sit down and say, all right, we've we've unleashed all this new technology on the world that's going to be really revolutionary. Let's take a moment and really try to educate people on what it is, how it works, what it can do, what it can't do, what it should do, you know, how, how can this make your life better without stripping you of some of that more human aspects and without totally upending the world. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, who should take charge of this? Uh, John, you know, my favorite person should take, to take charge of this. Cause I know he'll, he'll get it right. Elon, Elon should just jump into the AI. I mean, it, it wasn't, he, he's, he's got a lot on his plate. He started a lot open AI, didn't he? He was part of the founding. Didn't we talk about that once? Um, I think so. I think he put some money into it. <laughs> but again, I, because he saw that it, he thought saw it was important, so like he he recognized like these are things we got to figure out. So let's get the let's get the good guys figuring it out. And now uh, maybe they're not so good. Well, I mean, it, it's hard to tell who's good and who's bad. Let's face it. And like, I mean, Mark Cuban's been talking about AI for like eight years. Like every time I hear Cuban talk, he's like, you invest in AI. And if I had any money, I would have put it in AI years ago. And maybe I'd have more money now, but I didn't have any money then. And I still don't have any now. So, you know, like Cuban's out there with great advice and everybody should have listened to him, but we didn't. <laughs> but like, well, but they've been, I mean, the AI has been in research for like, since computers came about, like the, the whole idea of having a computer understand a human and do something about it. Like that's, been an area of research for a long time i think what's changed is again a key fundamental technology that's underlies it and this is the, the fact that you've got programmable graphical processing units like that's something that's more modern and that allows you to do the kind of computations that were much more complicated um even i think 15 years ago so i i think like yeah it's easy to say that you should invest in ai but you could have been burning millions and millions of bucks with nothing to show for it as we've been doing um so but that's how capitalism you should, works. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying like <laughs> people, it's easy to say you should invest in AI. It's easy to say you should you always have an umbrella. I mean, like you get, you know, you'll get it right one of these days, but um, the real, the real luck is like being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. But I mean, I, you know, going back to the Elon thing is I don't know who's in charge of open AI. I don't know who's in charge of Microsoft. I don't know. I don't know any of these people, right? I do know who Elon is to a degree, as much as anybody can know, you know, somebody they've never met. Um, but like, he at least, he's a, he's a relatively honest person, even if you don't agree with everything he says. And he, I do think he's trying to do the right thing. I just think that he makes a lot of mistakes, but like, so do I. So like, what do you, you just, he's just under a magnifying glass and his mistakes are bigger because he has more power and more money and more everything. So, um, but like, I feel more comfortable if there was a face like a, a human element to the technology would be nice. Like open AI, who's your spokesperson? You know, like back to that information part. Let's put some videos out. Let's talk about this. <laughs> they had a nice intro for the chat GPT-4. It's a bunch of happy people in engineering looking offices holding Macs. 
talking about how powerful it is. So there's some phases somewhere, but but this is like you got to be plugged in. Like I know it's because I'm kind of plugged into the technology stuff. But if you're just a a, a regular uh, what is it, Joe Plumber that we talked about uh, eight years ago? Like you know, you got a small business, you're just trying to make ends meet. Like you, you're not paying attention to this. Yeah, I mean, I I'll actually say that. Um, so I mean, I'm part of a small business networking group. I mean, yeah, they actually are. Like before, or right around the same time I got into ChatGPT, everybody in my little business networking group came got into it, and I overheard some of the guys talking. They were like, "Dude, it'll write a blog post for you in like 30 seconds." And now you don't have to do that anymore. So like, it is very valuable to small business owners like that are, you know, trying to compete with big industries and it allows them to do the writing that maybe they don't have time to do. And it gives them, you know, basic information because like everything's based on content now. It doesn't matter like what you do or how good you are at your job. It's just how much are you feeding into this, you know, technology realm. And um, so like they're a little bit more in tuned, but again, they're using it because it does something that they aren't, you know, like it's not their special skill set, um, which means that mm-hmm. they probably don't understand it the best. I don't understand it, you know. Like, I mean, you know better than I as far as like what goes. Yeah, well, I still don't understand it. I, I, like, I think I've said it. Like, I every time I go and try to like learn the machine learning, the the linear algebra just kind of like crushes me with all the tensors <laughs> and stuff. And um, and I've had I've had students who've done the in it like a sort of an independent study machine learning, and I feel like all they do is just like copy and paste code in order to follow tutorials. And then they sort of like have curated data sets that get curated answers. Like, I, I think this is a very, it's a very complicated thing that I would say very few people really understand it. If, if anyone does, honestly. Yeah. All right. Well, Scott, before you, uh, before we end, I want to ask you a couple of questions, just like that. I'm curious, like your generation, what are you thinking about? Um, what do you think of the presidency itself and the focus that citizens put on the office? Um, so I think I think the presidency gets I mean I think it gets way too much focus because I think it has a lot of power and it it gets the focus that its level of power deserves. But I think that's a problem because people are just so polarized about it. It's every four years the election is you know, do or die for everybody in the country because of how powerful that is. And I think a lot of kids my age understand that and, and recognize that and either care too much. I mean, you see a lot of a lot of student rallies that are really passionate, kids are really passionate about these issues because they genuinely think it is do or die. Or you have a lot who just don't care because of the way politics works today. Um but I think the presidency is sort of seen as the be-all, end-all for a lot of young kids because realistically, that's where a lot of power is today. And so they see it as, all right, well, whoever's president, they make the rules. They sort of you know, do what they want. And that's the way people view the presidency. Yeah, I, uh, I agree with you too much there. It's a problem. <laughs> um, so like as a young conservative, like where would you like to see – like conservatives go in the next five to 10 years? Like, what are you hoping will change? So I hope, I hope conservatives take on a very pro small business line. Um, You said a few times during the discussion that, you know, we were talking about the way AI is going to revolutionize, you know, business and the economy. I think the revolution is really going to come in big business, like big corporations who can afford to invest in this new technology. And so what I would like to see conservatives do is really put a focus on developing small business, um, helping people get small businesses started, build a nation of small businessmen. That way they're sort of insulated from these changes and, you know, more local communities. Um, I'd also like to see conservatives, as as we just mentioned with the presidency, I'd like to see conservatives say, we're going to take back some of this power from the presidency and we're going to put it back in the hands of Congress and we're going to make it so the system works the way it's supposed to with Congress on an equal footing with the president. That way your representative matters, who you elect matters. Because right now in a lot of places, people don't really care who the congressman is because they don't think they have that much power because they just go to they go to D.C. to perform for the camera and that's all they do. And I would like to see conservatives say, no, we're going to we're going to take some of this power back from the presidency. We're going to do away with this sort of one man show in Washington. We're going to give Congress the power it deserves. 
that way your representatives have to be serious. You have to care about who you elect and how the system works the way it's intended to. Oh my God. You just, you're speaking my language, man. So the class that John and I put on Saturday was exactly that class. It's called representation. And we were telling everybody, you have to focus on your representation. We were teaching people what you should look for in a representative, what a representative's job and why it's most important to pay attention to your representative versus the executive, right? Because that's how you make real change as a citizen. It's the closest you're going to get to your power. And like, it's kind of silly for me in Virginia, although I am, let's say I lived in North Dakota, okay? It'd be silly for me to be like, I'm going to meet the president and he's going to listen to me and he's going to make the change that I want. No, it's that's never going to happen. But you can meet your representative and you should be able to, but the house is too big. Yeah. That. <laughs> and then yes. they can meet the president and the other people inside as I call it, the sphere of power, and then they can make the change. That's how the system's supposed to work. But we've been tricked into like donating money and putting up signs and like, this is the way to solve your problem. And it's like, no, that's the way to give you money. (laughs) John, what do you, you have any questions for Scott before we head out today? Uh, I do have a Scott and I don't mean to trap you. Um, But uh, Scott, how would you define what a conservative is? Ooh, that's a good way. That's a good question. Oh, that's that's tough. I wrote a post on this, and I and, wish I could know what I wrote. I just, you know, I'll ramble while you think about it. like people would say like Donald Trump's a conservative, and I would say not based on how I grew up, but maybe now he is. So maybe the definition changes. Like you know, um, so what would you say a conservative is, and what would define someone who writes for that your website, Lone Conservative? So in America, a conservative is somebody who appreciates the principles of the U.S. Constitution and seeks to uphold them, as well as the principles of the Declaration of Independence. Both of those are very, very invaluable. Um, a conservative is also somebody who approaches politics with a prudent mindset. Um, we were talking today, and you know, the whole this entire podcast about how change and radical change. A conservative approaches that and say, "All right, we should slow it down because we don't know what the side effects are going to be." And so they sort of approach both society and politics with a, a prudent, let's take it slow. We don't want revolution. We don't want radicalism. Let's, let's be you know, smart about this. Um, conservatism in America is often limited government because government has very defined roles, very specific jobs. And we should stick to that. That way it's done well. Um, And then a conservative also, this is a key point for, this was a key point for Russell Kirk, who I think is as conservative as it comes. And a conservative believes that there is a moral order, that there's a moral code that we should all try to live by. And that's important to try to uphold those virtues because that's what makes a good person and that's what makes a good society. And so those are the things that conservatives generally believe. Yeah, I like that. So um, I guess I'd just, uh, if I could poke at it just for fun, um, like I, I work on this like this crazy Loudoun County School Board and I got a, I work with a bunch of Democrats and I would say they would all say that they uphold the, dec- the, the principles of the Declaration and the principles of the Constitution. So is there something like specific in there or is it more just um, maybe it's it's they're more willing to defer to something like what we call like judicial activism, like where so you've got the, the bench rights of rules. Um, and then like a second follow on to that, but like, going back to russell kirk saying there's a moral order and stuff like what if the moral order that you're trying to espouse is you got to be kind to everyone you can't say a single mean word to someone like that's someone's moral order like is there is there more of a backstop that he would would kind of push into that uh area or is it really just acknowledging that there is sort of a a shared moral order and then it's our job to to kind of suss that out and figure what it is so so to answer your first question um I was actually writing a piece about this specifically. I, I didn't mean to cast Democrats out of that equation. No, um, and I know you didn't, but I just like, I, that's something yeah. that someone would, would respond to. I could imagine someone responding to that. To that. So it, what's it, what's important there is I, I, I made sure to emphasize American conservatives because mm-hmm. the importance of the U.S. Constitution and the Declaration of Independence is not only that it ascribes certain powers to government that maybe – uh, somebody, a Democrat might say, you know, is pretty loose, more loose about you know, Congress and federal government has more power to do. But it's also a way of thinking about politics. Um, the U.S. is very special in this regard in that 
we are a nation of self-governing citizens. No matter what our government does, the assumption is that it's temporary and it's meant to help the individual govern himself. And mm -hmm. so he doesn't need to be ruled. He doesn't need to be told what to do by a government. It's meant to help him govern himself according to those virtues. And a, a conservative and a, a Americans broadly, I don't want to, again, I'm not going to cast the words out of this, but conservatives try to recognize that and don't veer towards other ways of governing, like some countries in Europe where you're not a nation of citizens. It's, it's, a, it's a nation of subjects where the government just rules and it tells you what to do and it tells you how to live your life because you're not smart enough to govern yourself. In America, we are, and it's important to remember that when we approach governance. As to your second question, Russell Kirk himself understood Christianity as that backstop. Um, he, he would say that, that America and the West broadly is very Christian. Christianity is what built the West. And so that's the moral order that we should recognize. More broadly, though, conservatism believes that there is, what I mean by moral order is that there is truth, objective moral truth in this world. And it's not always definable, and very rarely is it definable. It's hard to define exactly what that is at all times, but it is discoverable. And our jobs as humans is to live, our job in life as an individual is to search for that virtue and to search for that moral order. And so you live your life in pursuit of that virtue because that's what makes you a good person. And if we all do that, left and right, that's what generates a good society. So it it's funny that you say that because I sent you along with like 47 other people the same text on Friday morning, and it said, Don Quixote is a story of a man trying to decipher reality from fantasy, truth from lies. This is the struggle of all men, all leaders. The good ones figure it out, and the race, the rest chase, chase windmills. And that book was written in the 1600s, right? And like, we're still dealing with it, and, you're, and we're still talking about it right now. Um, and, uh, you know back to the conservative thing and the, and the Democrats, like Grover Cleveland was a conservative and he was a Democrat. Like mm -hmm. being a conservative mm -hmm. doesn't mean like it's outside of the party structure. I think that like we, we all kind of get trapped. Like yeah. they've made us believe that it's either got to be red or blue. But like, you can be a Democrat and still be a conservative. You could be for progress, but slowing it down, you know, like, or, yeah. you know, you could be for different types of changes to the constitution, but still adhere to the principles that we are a self-governing republic and we're not going to take that away through any type of constitutional changes. No, I agree with all that. I definitely, all of that is very true. And I think the story of Don Quixote is very relevant to today's society. And I hope, I wish more people would read it because I read it when I was young and I really enjoyed the story, both because it's funny and because it's very relevant to today. It, it's one of the best books I've ever read. Like I read it with my daughter. She's 13. We read it together this year. Um, and it was, it was an absolute delight. So um, again, recommend that. Speaking of books, you read a lot, right, Scott? Yes. What's your, what's the best book you've read? Like, so 2023 is short. What's in like calendar year? You have a whole year to pick from. What's the best book you've read? Best book I've read in the calendar year. Um, I think I recommended to see you. Um, Yuval Levin's A Time to Build was life-changing. I recommend it to anybody who wants to read, anybody who can read, should read this book, <laughs> left or right. doesn't matter if you're into politics, not into politics, if you're a parent, if you're a student, if you're a journalist, if you're a politician, if you're a voter, if you work at a restaurant, whatever you do, Yuval Levin's A Time to Build applies to you and you should read it because it has such a great analysis of what is wrong with society today, what all our problems stem from a common cause. And if you read it and you recognize, once you read it and once you see the world the way he sees it, you can't unsee it. I have it on my bookshelf. I'm going to get to it soon. I promise. Oh, it's, it's back there. Fantastic. It will change the way you look at society. Awesome. All right. Well, I appreciate you uh, joining us again. Uh, Scott Howard is a junior at University of Florida, and he writes for the Loans Conservative. Um, they're, you know, I don't know. I, I just recently discovered you guys, you know, the Loan Conservative, but I've been pretty impressed with them so far. So go check them out. Um, do you have a, a Twitter handle you want to share? You're the conservative. I do. Um, I like it. Yeah, at at conservamuse, and if you search Scott Howard, you'll you'll find me. I'm, I think I'm the first name to pop up. Um, very interesting I, I, 
Thank you. Thank you. I love the conversations that you and your friends get into because, you know, I, somebody's got to have them. <laughs> that's, that's, that's my philosophy. Somebody has to have them, so it might as well be me. Um, and, but, uh, um, th- go ahead. I was like, thanks for having me on. I had a good time. Absolutely. Um, for, yeah, thanks for joining us. For our regular uh, podcast subscribers, um, you can go, um, we're going to be on our YouTube channel, uh, Politics and Parenting. We have our class from this Saturday that we recorded and is up. Um, if you pair that with the article representation that's on our Substack, you can have the full class for yourself there. You can watch it at home. Um, if you watch it, it's 45 minutes. I promise it's entertaining. John is just absolutely delightful and funny. You won't regret it. Um, when you're done, write a comment. What, was, know, what was the quote we got, Jeff, from the afterwards? It was... Oh. Uh... This was a lot more intellectually stim- stimulating than I thought was the quote that we got, which was like, yeah, sweet. That, that's, that's a positive thing to be said. Um, yeah. And uh, I've actually gotten a few text messages from people that came. They had a really good time. Um, very happy, uh, you know, how well it turned out. So like I said, it's on YouTube. I made it easy for everybody. You don't have to come to Giuseppe's. You can watch it at home in your PJs. Um, but uh, leave us a comment. Help us out. Uh, it helps raise the voice, uh, helps encourage others to watch. I think it's really important uh, as a society. We, you know, like, like what Scott was mentioning, we got to focus less on the executive. We got to focus on what we can change, the things that we can control, and that's our representation. Um, so you can check it out on Politics and Parenting on YouTube. You can find the article on our Substack. And then uh, this obviously is on Spotify and Apple. Leave us a comment, a like, a share, anything you want. Reach out. Let's have a conversation. And remember, peace and love.